Well, we're on our second session of the Apostolic Heart if you're just coming in. I can't catch you up, but I'll, I'll try to summarize one point. I'm addressing the issue of the Apostolic Heart. There's been a lot of definitions about what the function of an apostle is. There's a lot of definition about the office of an apostle. But we have very little teaching on the heart of an apostle, that apostolic heart, that heart standard that should lead us into ministry. What does it mean to have that apostolic heart when we enter into full-time ministry and the sobriety of ministry and the weightiness of ministry and the great privilege to speak words about Jesus? I was hitting on the first characteristic of what I call the divine wound. Throughout history, the divine wound is that place where Jesus reveals himself so tenderly to the human heart that it tears down all the defense mechanisms and fears of the heart to give us to love. In other words, it's when the love of Christ so strikes us, his beauty, what he's done for us, who he is, that the greatest thing there, it, there seems to do is to give Him everything. The divine wound. How Jesus as an apostle, the chief apostle, the Son of God, the Son of Man, took His disciples, His apostles, on a three and a half journey of discovering and encountering God in the flesh. And we have, what was that like? To interact with Jesus and know you're interacting with the Father. Philip, have you been with me this long and you don't know the Father? What do you mean, show you the Father? Haven't, haven't I been with you these three and a half years? Yeah, but we want to see the Father. Oh, it's Philip! <laughs> the Father is just like me. I am in the Father. The Father's. <laughs> We're one, Philip. Imagine that. And so the, the apostles were so ruined over love for Jesus that the thought or the cost of being poured out for him was minimal, was nothing. I mean, they were so undone by Jesus. Can you imagine the tenderness of Peter? There he is on the night before, the night before Jesus is going to be crucified and they're around the table and so there's one of you here going to deny me jesus jesus i'll never deny you oh yes you will three times to my face once i'll even look over at you but don't worry i prayed for you peter and when you've returned strengthen your brothers then he would come to peter and restore him in kindness and then, you know what he said to Peter? Peter, because of this, you're going to do anything and everything <laughs> to get me back on this planet. Have you ever been so ruined by God? Or what do you even do with a God that plans to so ruin you through encounter? You'll leave your father's house, your father's land, and go over to this little area called Canaan. 
And what was it so powerful in the encounter of God that as soon as Abraham encountered him and built an altar, God sent a drought and drove him down to Egypt. What is this God who's arranging your circumstances to encounter you, to draw forth something He loves and desires? It's called your affections. It's the one thing you can give Him. Your affections. You know what? They can do a lot of things to you, but they can never rob your affections. They can silence you, but they can't take your affections away. When you understand that, prayer takes on a whole new meaning. I remember the story about the Chinese evangelist. He, was, he had had a stroke and he was paralyzed and he was in the, his, his bed. And as he was laying in his hospital bed, they came up to him and they said, they said uh, are you so sad that you can't go evangelize anymore? That you're unable to walk and unable to, unable to be able to preach like you need to? He goes, no, you don't understand. See, he had a revelation of, of Jesus. You know what he said? You don't understand. When I pray from this hospital bed, all of China shakes. He said, you don't get it. <laughs> I know him. <laughs> you can take me out, but I can ask him for things. He'll raise up ten more just like me. Lord of the harvest, raise up laborers. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> The divine wound. It so hit John the apostle. Can, can you picture him leaning up against Jesus' breast on the night that he was betrayed? Jesus there, one of you are going to betray me. And everyone's saying, who is it? Who is it? Is it I? Is it I? And Peter is already on bad terms. Really, six months earlier, he had really stumbled into something. The father gave him a revelation that Jesus was the Christ. He said, you're the Christ. But then minutes later, Jesus rebuked him, said, Satan, get behind me. So Peter's not doing anything to ask Jesus anything. He's already been told he's going to deny him three times. And he was called Satan months earlier. He goes, I'm not asking him who's going to betray him. I'm already in the doghouse. And he whispers over to John and he goes, he loves John. Get John to ask him. He'll tell John anything. And you know what happens? John asked him. And Jesus told him. John who leaned on his breast. And John who watched him die on that cross. Was so struck by love. That even in his latter years when they tried to kill him. The tradition is they tried to boil him in oil twice. Can you imagine that? They put him in oil. I don't mean imagine you being boiled by oil. What what I mean is, (laughs) what I mean is, can you imagine walking up to the oil? And I mean, I I could just picture this. I don't know about you, but I I would. I'd be praying in tongues. I'd be doing everything. (laughs) But can you imagine once you're in it and it's not hurting you? That's cool. I mean, can you picture that? <laughs> well, come on, get out. No, no, you come and get me. Just, come on in, the oil's fine. 
<laughs> and they do it to him twice and he won't boil in oil. So you know what they do? What do you do with a man who won't boil in oil? It's a predicament, isn't it? You know, so they exile him to Patmos. They stick him in the bottom of a mine. And he's working in a mine. But he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And suddenly, whoosh, there's a man who's standing in front of him whose voice sounds like rushing waters and like a trumpet. His eyes are a blaze of fire. His hair is white like snow and wool. He's got a white linen on. He's got a golden sash. And a two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. And his feet are like burning bronze. And he's holding the seven stars in his hand. <laughs> I can just picture Jesus. He's just going, watch this. I'm going to blow John's mind again. <laughs> what do you mean? He, he leans on your breast. You tell him mysteries. He saw you at the crucifixion. He saw you resurrected. He goes, he hadn't seen this before. <laughs> I watch him. And sure enough, he shows up in all of his glory in that encounter. John hits the ground like a dead man. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, John. It's just me. <laughs> Don't be afraid, John. Get up. I've got the keys of death and hell, John. John, not only did you hear me tell you mysteries, not only did you discover that it was that it's safe to lean upon my breast and ask me mysteries. Not only did you discover that God as a man was willing to bear your sin and die for you. Not only did you discover that God as a man resurrected from the grave and has given you everlasting life. You're about to discover something, John. I hold the keys of death and hell and I'm going to close this thing out right. And no demon in hell, no nation on the earth, and no demonic king can stop me. I'm the Lord of glory, John. Get up. You're going to have a front row seat. I'm fine down here, Jesus. Get up. I've got things to show you. And get out your notepad. I'm going to blow your mind. It so blew John's mind that he kept falling down in the fetal position, worshiping an angel. Did you know that? Twice. John is so blown. He sees the revelation of Jesus. He, he falls down in the fetal position. Worshipping the angel. And the angel goes, get up. Get up, John. No, get up now. He's jealous. You better not worship me. You better get up now. I just see that angel going, don't you do this to me. He doesn't like that. I'm a fellow servant. Right, Jesus? I'm a fellow servant. It's his problem. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. Do you know what you know what John did at the end of that revelation? Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming soon. And you know how John ended it? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come 
The spirit and the bride say, come. He goes, if you actually encounter him, if you get that wound on your heart, you'll do anything to get him back. Come, come. Do you know what the promise is in Revelation twenty-two seventeen? We're finally going to encounter Jesus enough to where we actually are one with the spirit and thinking it's better that he would come back. I don't know about you, but I grew up in religion. And I always thought of the second coming as just kind of a drab thing. I mean, those poor angels that got to sit up there and say, holy, holy, holy all the time. They don't ever get to do anything new. I didn't see how that was like a good thing. I didn't really see the connection why I wanted to go there and do that all the time. I thought those poor angels, all they get to do is say that. I had no revelation of the one who they were saying that to. That was the problem. But I remember growing up going, oh, and Jesus, if you're going to return, I watched that thief in the night thing, you know, where he's gone and the, the razor's in the sink. And, you know, I was like, well, I was like, well, Jesus, if you're going to come back, can you like wait till I get my driver's license? And if you're going to wait till I get my driver's license, I really want to be married. I'd really like to have kids. And if I'm going to have kids, they always say that it's better to be a grandparent because then you don't have to discipline them. You just get to spoil them. So, Kenny, if you're going to hold off, can I be a grandparent? And then you know what? Why don't you just wait because I really want to be old and just kind of sitting in a rocking chair. And right as I'm about to nod off to sleep and die, you can come back right before that. Now tell me, did anybody ever have those thoughts? Come on, especially the driver's license one. But you know why I thought that? I had no revelation of how beautiful Jesus is. And everyone who encountered him couldn't wait for him to get back. Do you know what Paul said? I mean, he was just bold. He just said, cursed be anyone who does not love Jesus. He said that. He said, cursed be anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. They don't love you. It's their problem. You come. I mean, they, they talk like this. The divine wound. I was speaking of the importance of us as ministers of the gospel to be wounded by love. Now, it's important for every one of us. Why? Because it's available to every one of us. But if you're going to minister and feed his sheep, you've got to have this reality in your life. It's not okay. Or else you will be taken by the tyranny of your own gifting. And that's what you'll lean on. It won't be the power of Christ in you. It will be your own gifting haunting you down to produce the next best message. You know that's a horrible feeling. It's a horrible feeling, especially if you're a preacher, because you have the pressure of doing a good message. And then if you actually do a good message, you have the pressure of doing another good message. It's horrible. And then you go, I can't get any relief from this thing. (laughs) But if you have the divine wound, it doesn't matter whether you think it's a good message. It matters if I've been faithful and I've treated his word rightly and I've kept my heart in a place of sincerity 
And I prayed for the sheep that they would walk in that which I've already experienced or either touched on. It's a whole different reality. The divine wound, you know what it preserves us from? Professional ministers. Oh my. Save us. It gives us authentic again. The divine wound. The second thing I want to talk about is the divine possession. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4.3. Did I say 1 Timothy? I mean 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> You're like, I don't think this verse matches. No, it's 1 Thessalonians. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Look at this. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you. Now here. This is very important. That each of you should know. How to possess his own vessel. And sanctification and honor. This is the will of God. Period. Don't you like that? This is the will of God. Many people say. I, w- I want to know God's will for my life. I go okay I got it for you. It's really easy. Your sanctification. No, I want to, I, I mean, what occupation I'm going to do. Oh, I know what you meant, but my answer is the same. Your sanctification. No, you don't understand. I'm going crazy. I don't, under, I don't know what I'm called to do. I'm going, well, I'll just give you a little insight, my perspective. You, you'll have your own. But for 6,000 years, hardly anybody got to ever choose what they wanted to do. You did what your dad did. You did what your mom did. And for 5,000 and some years, if you, were, if you were under the oppression of men, you were a woman, you didn't get a choice what you were going to do. And even now that we have a choice, most people get to the end of their life and go, I don't know why I did that. Almost every person I know in their later years, I ask them, what did you do for a living? Well, I did this and that. I didn't really want to. <laughs> then what is all this hubble up of what the will of God is? God's will, God's specific will. Do something and possess your vessel for honor. Do something. But I tell you, this is the will of God, that whatever you choose, that you would learn the glory of possessing your vessel for honor. Let me tell you, the apostolic heart, the divine possession, to have Jesus get all of his inheritance in you. You heard it this morning. Mike already preached it. I don't need to preach it. The place where you want God to have all of you. And if you get the divine wound, it's going to take you there. If he touches your heart enough, it's going to lead you there. I hear all the time people go, I'm really afraid to give God everything. It's going to cost me so much. I go, cost you so much? 
What do you mean it's going to cost you so much? Do you know how much demons cost you? You know what the average cost of a demon is? No, I'm serious. You want to know what the cost of having a devil that you have to feed his appetite through you? How many hundreds of dollars are spent feeding the appetite of demons? How much emotional energy is spent with shame and condemnation resting on the body of Christ because we have not learned how to possess our vessels for honor? We have not learned the glory of contending. I want to call for a whole generation. Hey, let's get in the game. I didn't say you had to be perfect. Let's just get in the game. Let's go there. Well, Alan, are you, are you saying that we can have entire sanctification? No, that's not what I said, but it'd be a nice shot. Can we at least have the shot? Can we even put it on the table to discuss it? Before you come up with your theology for your barren life and your devils that are pets that you feed? Can we at least talk about holiness for real? Can we at least pretend for a moment that the Holy Spirit is able to do immeasurably above all that we ask or imagine? Can we actually come into agreement for a moment that He gives us everything we need for life and godliness? Can we actually believe that the one who broke the power of hell and sin and death lives in us and gives us a greater power in us than he that's in the world? Can't we discuss it for a moment and can't we get in the game to give it the best shot? The divine possession. The glory of it. Can I tell you something? I want to share something with you. This isn't, this isn't say, I did this. This is the grace of God. I want to tell you something. I want to call forth a whole generation of young men to never, ever, ever click that mouse. Man, I want to, I, I, what? Just picture this. We are going to live through the most assaulted generation on the eyes perversion off the charts who wants to get in the fight to contend for your eyes i can't wait i want to be one of those whom i walk through the most adulterous and perverse generation and my eyes are fixed on him i want to go whoa i want to never click that mouse i want to tell you this i want to tell you this i have it and by the grace of god I want to never, ever, ever give my eyes to pornography. Why? Why? I want to possess my vessel for honor. I want to possess it. I want to rule over that thing. I want to know what it's like to access power when I have no more power. I want to know what it's like when all the hordes of hell are beaming down on me and I resist my flesh and say yes to God. And notice it. Oh, I want to tell you, it can be done. And God is going to right now, if you've done that, push, delete, and let's get in the fight, beloved. Let's put in the fight. Burn your computer, destroy it, do whatever you want. But let's get in the fight.
Let's get in the game. Because I want to tell you, I want to tell you something that's glorious. That I can't, I wish, I wish I'd have believed this when I was your age. There is no greater feeling than to lay your head on your pillow at night clean before God. Oh, a clear conscience that we would not despise it. Do you know what it's like to be apprehended and possessed by God when you lay down at night? You're free. <laughs> oh, man. I have this dream. It's to be a really old man. Some of you are going, well, you're going to get that. <laughs> but that's an easy dream. <laughs> Shoot a little higher. <laughs> so, what I mean by this is I have this dream to be a really old man and to have learned to walk holy before God, to have really loved him, to know his love, to be faithful to my wife, to be faithful to my sons and to when I'm 80 years old to just weep and cry all the time over Jesus. There was this man called Bob Lyons. I was in my 20s and he came to speak at our healing and deliverance class one day. And he sat up there and as he went to speak, he had already been part of five different revivals. He was one of those rare people that were able to hit every wave. In his generation, you know, those types, and he never grew bitter, never grew sour. He just kept on, and he would sit and meditate. I remember the first time I went over to his house, they said, here, I'm going to take you over to Bob Lyons' house. We're going to learn how to do contemplation. And I sat there, and he closed his eyes, and he said, hey, we're just going to wait on the Lord. He closed his eyes. About 30 minutes later, I'm like looking around going, all right, I closed them. What do we do now? Another hour? I'm going, that joker's falling asleep. I say, what is it? He is falling asleep. He's in his 80s. That guy's out. I mean, have you ever been in that case when I, I just wanted to check his pulse? I don't know, the guy's, he's dead. And then, I mean, probably a couple hours later, all of a sudden his eyes pop open. And he goes, Okay. Let's talk about what the Lord gave you. The Lord just gave me that you're breathing. That's all I got. <laughs> I was worried about you there for a little bit, Mr. Lyon. <laughs> I thought you were gone. <laughs> that was my first introduction to him. The second introduction, actually that was my second. My first introduction was when he stood before the class and he went to teach us on healing or deliverance. I can't remember which one it was. It was in a Jim Gall class. And he lifted up his hand and he said the name of Jesus once. He went to say, thank you, Jesus, just to start out in the prayer. He was gone. He just started weeping and worshiping for the whole rest of the class. Jesus, the wave of the Spirit hit the class. All of a sudden, we're all loving Jesus. I want to love Jesus. And I go, I want to be like that. I want that. I want to know him. and I want to be holy before him. 
And I want to turn around and tell a whole generation, it works. Do you know what? I've known the Lord some 20-some years now. And I want to tell you, going on the age of 39, it works. There are things you're dealing with now that if you will let him wound your heart and you will enter in to the contending to possess your vessel for honor, there will be things you won't struggle with two to five years from now. We always want it so fast, don't we? We want, we want the microwave plan. Oh, beloved, he's not into the microwave plan. You know what he's into? Possession. Generals, you know, generals really don't like to conquer land really fast. Alexander got to the edge of India. He had nowhere else to go than in this river valley. He wept. He had no more lands to conquer, and he's only 30-some years of age. Beloved, you know, generals like to conquer land slow. They like to take ground. They like to saturate an area. (laughs) Beloved, have you got a vision for apprehending your life? I want to tell you, I grew up as the most, one of the most impatient, passionate people on the earth, which translates to I can have all kinds of impatient outbursts. You know passionate personalities? How many of you can relate to a short fuse and you flare up and then you're gone? Oh, what, what do you mean we're still on time? No, I'm done. I just said my little piece. I'm done. You know what? I've got a vision. And I grew up in a house. We didn't hug each other or do anything of that stuff. I married a wife who is the love child. I mean, she was eight years younger than her older sister, four older siblings, and she was the love child. She came out the love boat, and everybody's just kissing and loving all over her whole life. Me, it was a whole different family. And I get married to her. I'm bold, outspoken. Forceful. Yeah, we got to do this. Come on, come on, come on. She's just the love. Now, beloved, you can do the math and figure out what, what collisions took place there. But you know, I've got a vision. I've got a vision to be really old and really tender with my wife. I'm going to possess that ground. I want the grace of God to make me a tender man. I want him to make me holy before him. With my children to be patient, to listen, to be humble. I'm going to fight for it. <laughs> you know why? And you know if I do? You know what God's editing process will be? He will look upon that journey of faith and wrestling. And he will say, righteous. And give me a crown one day. Do you have a vision for that as a minister of the gospel? Do you? For real? I can't wait. And here's the good news. This is the only life you get to exercise that kind of faith. One day you'll see him face to face. You'll be fully changed. You won't get to fight for it. I, I want to lay hold of it. You know what? He gave me the kingdom for free. But how far I go in the grace of God is up to me. And I want to possess my soul for honor. I think you understand what I'm saying. The divine possession. Do you know what it says in 1 Corinthians 15? That our resurrected bodies 
will all shine in different degrees of glory. Did you know that? Did you know our resurrected bodies, it says in Daniel 12, that our bodies will shine like the stars in heaven for all eternity. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, just as stars vary in their glory, so too in the resurrection. I have a vision for contending for holiness in this life that the glow in the next life. The glory that will rest on my frame in the next life. And you know what? I don't want to sell out that glory resting on my frame for a billion times a billion times a billion times a billion times another billion. And after it just began another billion for some fleeting temporary pleasures in this one. I want to possess my vessel for honor. And then the third one. The divine labor. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Is anybody else hot in here? Can somebody turn down something? The divine labor. The divine wound. The divine possession. Oh, I want to say this again. It is not costly to follow God. Costly to serve demons. Possess your vessel for honor. Choose the sanctification of your soul. Get in the fight. Contend for it. You know what? You know what it says of Abraham in Romans 5? It says he's without fault in his generation. You know what it says about David? It says that in the New Testament that he served God's highest purposes in his generation. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think Abraham was without fault? Never wavering in faith. Can you think of two incidents? Do you call wavering in faith when you say, no, that's not my wife, she's my sister? Well, she technically is my sister. I don't want to go all into it, but, you know. Would you say that David faltered some in serving God's purposes in his generation? Then my question to you, what is the editing process when God looks down from heaven and evaluates your life? What is it? I'm going to tell you. Did you get in the game? Did you extend that muscle? Not that you just were perfect at every moment. But did you, though you were a righteous man, fall seven times, he shall get up. Will you contend for it? Will you exercise that faith to go another season? Will you hang in there long enough for just another year till you don't struggle with the things you used to struggle with? Will you give grace time to work on your behalf? Will you give God the time to do what He needs to do? It's more glorious to Him. You wish you had it in the five-year plan, but God is into 70-year plans and causing you to work that muscle and blow your mind and put you in the tension and the vice grips and the whole time. See if you'll say yes again. 
You know, Mike says this all the time to us. Christianity is the best thing. You win if you just don't give up. If you just stay in the game. Believe again. Believe again. Sign up again. You say, well, I've signed up and I haven't got free. Well, sign up again. Get a divine wound. Pursue him. Receive his love. Go after it. I guarantee you, you know what it says in Revelation 15? That everyone around the throne on the sea of glass will say, Great and marvelous are your works, just and true are all your ways. For you are the king of the ages. Another way that that translates your leadership is perfect. You can trust him. Last thing, real quick, divine labor. I didn't get to anything I was going to get to in the second session. The divine labor. Here's the issue. I have to sum it up in a few minutes. Do we understand that when you sign up for ministry, you sign up to be the witness of forgiving love? If you don't understand this principle, you'll want to give up in ministry. Or you'll want to pastor pastors. You don't want to be one, but you'll want to pastor pastors. Call yourself apostle so you can pastor pastors because you hate pastoring. But you like pastors because you can relate to how they feel horrible. So you want to help them feel less horrible. And it's much better to help them feel less horrible than for you to feel horrible pastoring. Now, of course, I'm dramatizing it all, but there's some truth in there. The divine labor. Did you know one of the largest apostolic functions is to be the witness of forgiving love in the midst of the congregation? The chief apostle crucified by his own people. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. What did he do? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's the example of forgiving love. Paul has an interesting relationship to Corinth. Corinth is, Paul goes to Corinth, and when he gets there, they're engaged with these so-called preeminent apostles, these super apostles. I mean, they have eloquent speech. They do signs and wonders. They have wisdom, great intellectual ability. And they won the hearts of the people. And when Paul gets there, what's going against Paul is, I'll just list a few accusations, see if you can relate. He does not keep his word. He's lowly and timid in person, but bold when absent. His presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. His speech is contemptible. How about that feedback for your Sunday morning sermon? Not you missed that point. You, your it was contemptible. Your body's weak. Well, yeah, I was stoned and left for dead. Do you know what? His eyes, he, when he wrote, he said, see what large letters? I'm writing this with my own hand. You know what? They think that that may be the case is because of being pummeled in the head with stones. And left for dead, it, it messed up his eyesight and even he had trouble with his limbs after that. So you had someone who suffered so greatly for the gospel and they say he's weak, he's sickly, 
He wants all our money. That's all he wants from us is to get our money. Some accusations where he wouldn't take our money. I mean, there's accusations all over. He's untrained in speech. He's sick. He's weakly. True apostles are above sickness. Now look with me at chapter 10. Here's how he responds. One of the most beautiful sections of Scripture is 2 Corinthians 10 through 12. It's, just, it's, it's unparalleled. You get to see Paul's apostolic heart and Paul's apostolic labor. Now look. He says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Here he voices their accusation. Who in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. He goes, you don't get it. I'm appealing to you out of meekness. When I come to you and I speak in meekness, you interpret it as me being weak. This is the nature of Christ. I'm acting this way because Christ is gentle. Christ is meek. And you can do a study, but when Christ, when it's mention of Christ, absolute and preeminent authority in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's always followed by a verse or preceded by a verse of his humility and meekness and gentleness. It's an amazing study. Paul goes, he goes on, he said, I beg you. That I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He's saying to you guys are measuring according to the flesh. You boast in appearance, but you don't boast in heart. You don't have an eye to see true apostolic ministry because you're impressed by the externals. You actually think I'm in a competition with these apostles. I'm not coming to be bold and show off my stuff. I'm appealing to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's not according to the flesh. We do not battle the flesh, right? Look what he says. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, Paul was ambushed, and after he was ambushed and accused, he left and went to Macedonia. He was supposed to go back through Corinth, but he skipped Corinth because the church was not in a state where he could approach them in gentleness. He went around them. They raised accusations of why didn't you stop? I guess you were afraid. I guess you couldn't make your case. And Paul writes back and goes, no, you don't get it. You're so carnal. This isn't a competition about which apostle is going to win the affections of the people. I'm appealing to you in gentleness. Our weapons are not carnal. My weapons are mighty for pulling down strongholds. You think the issue with this congregation is you need a better apostolic leader. The issue is you have no character. You're fighting with fleshly weapons. So I'm modeling forgiving love to you right now. I'm being gentle when you don't deserve it. I'm being meek when you don't deserve it. He said these weapons are mighty in God in pulling down strongholds. He then goes on. And look with me here. He said, he said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. He's listing off the pedigree. He tells us he hates even doing this. He hates this comparison. He goes, if you were spiritual enough, you could recognize. You have many instructors. You have few fathers. I'm your father. I birthed you in the gospel. Why are you doing this? He goes on to say, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. 
He said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Now look at this pedigree. Here's what he's going to boast in. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Do you know what that means? When Paul would enter into a synagogue and in the Jewish community begin to share the revelation of Christ, he would come to a place to where that synagogue would then pronounce that he was speaking blasphemy and he was given a choice at that point. Jews could not execute capital punishment, but they could execute some forms of punishment within their synagogue system. And one was, for a blasphemer, they either had to remove themselves from the community or they had to be willing to bear the 40 minus 1 stripes on their back to have access. Paul, look at this. Five times... Paul went into his people and he preached of Christ. And when they rejected him five times, he decided to take the lashes as a, as a sign of forgiving love in the midst of his own people. Have you ever labored like that? Have you ever so labored that you'd rather be whipped 40 minus 1? Five times. Now, beloved, when you get ripped open, you've all seen passion, so you know what I'm saying. I don't have to describe it. Six months to heal. A year to heal. Why do you think Paul was sick all the time? Infection in that world. Five times he took the beatings of his own people to stand in the midst of the assembly and be the witness of forgiving love. Then turn with me over. To chapter 12, verse, verse 12. He said, truly I did the signs of an apostle. I did all perseverance and signs, wonders, mighty deeds. And he says, now for the third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you. See the meekness he's appealing there. For I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Now look at verse 15. This is of another world. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Beloved, when you sign up for the ministry, you sign up. For that verse. You know why that verse seems so foreign? Because we hardly ever talk about it. We are so far from the reality of the divine labor. Of the God who loves so much. He will send his only son. So that he can be killed for our behalf. Paul says, though I love you abundantly, you love me less. But nonetheless, <laughs> I'm going to be the witness of forgiving love. I'm going to be gladly spent for your souls. Have you ever said that? I just want to be honest. I, I haven't reached that. Most of us sign up for the ministry and we don't prepare ourselves 
for Matthew 6, and that is this, that when we pray, we have to forgive others just like he forgave us. And you are the leader of your congregation in this way. You're the leader of forgiveness. Why? Because at the point, you're the one to be mistaken most, to be misunderstood most, to be questioned most. And in the midst of it, you have to forgive and be the model of forgiving love. And when they curse you, you bless back. And when they take your stuff away, you bless them. And when they talk behind your back, you love them more. And you're gentle and meek like Christ. It sounds like it sounds like these things are like strangers in a strange land, aren't they? These are like foreign concepts. I don't think I have one teacher in any class in my theological training ever tell me that. But I want to tell you, the divine labor. Will you love all the more when you're loved all the less? It's a whole other reality. Let's go ahead and stand. It's time.